Well, it's um, very good to be back with uh, my responsibility to share the Word of God with you this morning. And uh, I'm thankful and grateful to God for the Stevens who preached like a Stephen ministry. Might be a good name for a ministry, I don't know, Stephen ministry. And uh, I, I just, I want to express to each of you um, my profound thanksgiving for you, each of you, um, for your expressions of love. Um, it says in the Word of God, we're, we're to owe no man anything except the debt of love. And I now I'm in great debt to you for your love to me. And I, I thank you so much for the expressions of, of concern, which really humbled me and overwhelmed me, to be honest, that so many would care. And and uh, so for your gifts, your cards, your expressions, your prayers, food, soup, when I was on liquid diets, it was wonderful. And uh, I, I learned a, a lot about the body of Christ, I think, uh, even though I thought I knew a lot about the body of Christ, but I learned a lot about the body of Christ in this last month and uh, about God's word, uh, about prayer, and um, the um, events that sort of came upon me quickly were a little bit unnerving to say the least and I thought I would just express to you a little bit about what God has done and um, uh, when I was injured on the Friday night and, and was in the hospital I they, they phoned the uh, ear, nose, and throat specialist, and he woke him up, and he said, um, you should keep him in there, and I'll come in the morning. And, and I thought that um, all that would mean is that in the morning, he would come in and say, yeah, fine, just go home. And uh, when he came in in the morning, uh, I wasn't prepared for the fact that he was going to put a scope in my throat. Anybody had one of those? Well, lots of you. They go up through your nose and into your throat. And he said to me, um, he said, uh, women and children have no problem with this. <laughs> and, and so I thought, I said, well, I'm sure they don't. They're, they're good patients. Men are not good patients. Uh, but he was challenging my manhood. And so I said, bring on that scope. So, um, as, I, as I said, I thought he was just going to say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's fine, go home. But he said to me, hmm, it's, it's not fine. Um, he said, you're, what I can see, your vocal cord is not moving. And, you know, at your age, uh, there could be a number of problems with that. He said that uh, when you're younger, those kinds of things... Uh, uh, the cartilage is malleable and all of that. He's given me all these bad case scenarios. He said, perhaps yours is, because of age, has been calcified and it may be shattered and there may be surgery. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this and I, I, I thought I was leaving and I'm hearing this and I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, I don't have a plan B. Preaching is what I do. And it sounds to me like I might not be doing that ever again. 
That's what, that's what, that's what I was hearing. And so when he um, finished telling me, I said, well, that, that's not good. I said, because I make my living speaking. And he said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a preacher. He said, oh. And so that began our, our journey and you began to pray. And so um, I just wanted to, to tell you that when he left the room, I, I was quite anxious, but here's the thing. And this is how God always functions, I'm pretty convinced. I had just been teaching my new believers class that week, uh, Philippians chapter four, verses four to seven. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer, make your requests with thanksgiving known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. So I decided that since I teach this all the time to people, maybe I ought to apply it to my own life. And so I let those verses just run over and over and over me. And God's peace did come upon me, as he promises. And you prayed, and I'm here preaching this morning. And so I thank God for all that he's done. So we have a great and a powerful and a wonderful God, and his word is powerful to us. And his work is powerful among us. And we need to keep praying for each other. The body of Christ is a wonderful thing. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about how important it is to treat the body of Christ well. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for your immense love for us. And we thank you, O oh God, that you truly are our strength, our strong tower, our, our, our peace, and, O oh God, our salvation. And I pray today, Lord, as we peer into your word, that you would fashion our hearts to be submissive to you, to desire what you have for us, to long for it, to delight in the way you are and in your ways. And, O oh God, I pray that we would love each other with a boundless love, an overflowing love. And Lord, thank you that you are prayer answering God. And so our prayers this morning are that you would lift up our hearts to want to please you and to obey you by serving you with all of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, when I was just a, a young stripling and in my late teenage years, all the women who went to church in my day looked like this. And many of you who are chuckling remember these days, this, the, the, the big stir in church 40 years ago uh, was the removing of hats from the women in church. Remember that? Remember those days? We weren't fighting about drums and things like that. We were fighting about hats. Should women wear hats to church or should they not wear hats to church? 
And most of them were taking their hats off and coming to church. And we were aghast. And of course, there was another problem in those days, men with long hair. Should men come to church with long hair, can you be a Christian and a man and have long hair? And so we began to realize that, of course, the, the hats and the hair were our big problems, as I said, 40 years ago. And we were, of course, they were centered on 1 Corinthians 11 and the issues of the application of 1 Corinthians 11. And it became very apparent to most of us as we were watching women wear hats that these hats were not necessarily applications of 1 Corinthians 11, but natty fashion statements like this. <laughs> were these hats, in fact, applications of 1 Corinthians 11? Or were they just about who could have the finest hat in church? And so we struggled with these things 40 years ago. And today as I look upon the landscape of our congregation, I don't see any women wearing hats. And I hardly see any long-haired guys. Just the Howard kid. But there might be a couple of others. So here we have a text laid before us this morning that talks about head coverings and long hair and short hair and shaven hair and all kinds of strange things. And I must admit to you that in my debut back preaching, I would have picked a different text. But this is the one we have, have before us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Bigger than wearing hats, or more important than wearing hats and long hair and overindulging at communion, is the theological truth. What is the issue here? That's the critical thing. What is the theological lesson here? Because costuming may not, in fact, be the application of the text. Modern costuming may not be the application of the text. Uh, this begins, uh, chapter 11 begins Paul's journey into three major problems in the church. One is a problem between the genders. The second is a problem of selfishness at the Lord's table. And the third, which we'll look at next week, has to do with uh, spiritual gifts. And so this is, begins a section. From chapter 11 to chapter 14 are a section. They work together. You, you can't really separate them or you miss the, the point of the problems that he's bringing up. And he ties them together. And so the, the first problem is really taking freedom to enjoy equal value. Uh, Paul is going to later write in Galatians 3.28 that um, there is no male, there is no female. He's not talking in... in uh, a fashion that has removed all sexuality or gender distinctiveness. He's simply saying that in terms of value to God, whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, whether you're a slave, whether you're free, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, in terms of value to God, you are equal of equal value to God. 
But they were taking this teaching on equal value to mean freedom from creation standards, structure, and design. They were getting the idea, and we see this, we've seen this earlier in the book of Corinthians. We, we've seen where they were, they were casting off all the old boundaries and all the old fences and saying, well, I'm now free in Christ. It really doesn't matter. Everything goes. Everything's fine. Paul's going to address that. The application really of this text is always changing as the culture moves along. It's always changing. The theological truth never changes. The theological principles never change. But the application of a text like this is constantly changing. How do we reflect the theological truth of this text in our day? That's always the question. The second problem, which we'll hopefully get to, is the selfish, selfish exploitation of the new creation, the body of Christ, during the most profound symbol of our unity and value to Christ, the Lord's table. So here you have um, the... Um, the um, disregard and dishonor of creation in the first part of chapter 11 and the dishonor and disregard of the new creation in the second part of chapter 11. That's really how it breaks out, how it looks. And so um, this morning our worship may not be worship unless we really get these two major relational and social issues right. So I, I want to um, articulate for you the two key realities, regardless of what you, else you hear this morning, I want you to make sure you hear these two realities. And the first is this, more than ever, gender clarity, real manhood, real womanhood will be the church's gift to a seriously confused world. Our settled pleasure and joy in God's creation design and the modeling of it not only tremendously honors Christ, but offers a powerful alternative to the broken, fractious ways of our world. It is critical we get this out of the text. It is critical that we, under, that we understand that we stand as a congregation, we stand as a church, in 2015 at a very, very important crossroad. And I, I don't have to tell you in ways I would have had to tell you in the past that this is true. You know that we are living in a time of absolute gender confusion. The, the reality of how we are dealing men and women in our culture is, is, a, is desperately uh, broken and is not heading in a good direction. It's getting worse. And, and Paul appeals to every generation to be the model of God's purposeful, creative design in biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. That the church of Jesus Christ, those who represent the Lord, are called to offer a stark alternative to a completely confused culture. This is the key to understanding 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 down through verse 16, that we are 
to model God's wisdom in creating two different genders. The second, in the second part of chapter 11 is this. Unless we, the church, are able to supernaturally love and care for the body of Christ, from the very deepest recesses of our authentic hearts, I don't believe we have a chance at loving a lost and unlovable world into the kingdom of Christ. Our love and joy toward Christ's new creation is our only hope of embracing the Great Commission with any credibility or desire. The Bible says that in a variety of different ways, but if we don't love each other from a profound and deep love, we will not desire to love the lost into the kingdom of Christ. We just won't. So how important are these two matters? They are of infinite importance. The matter of God's creation and the matter of his new creation and the whole matter under the rubric of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are called to, be, to learn how to live in the Christian community, we are, being call, we are calling each of us to live the gospel life every day of our lives. What is gospel living? It's not, that, it's not enough that we were once saved. We were brought into this kingdom of Christ by salvation that we might live out the gospel every day of our lives. Gospel living with my wife, with my neighbor, with my children. Gospel living in my workplace, in the marketplace. What is it that, that sets us as distinct and different from the world? That's gospel living. It's to offer a compelling alternative to the people who we come in contact with to see something different in us. As we model the creation, the great design of God, which is under attack and has been under attack since the Garden of Eden. And to model our love for the new creation. Why would anybody want to join our club if we don't love each other? Why would anybody want to? And so these two realities pop out at, a, at us. And the critical timeless challenge, I think, hinges from verse 31 of chapter 10 into this section. Most of you know this verse off by heart, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's such a great encompassing verse. It sets up all of our lives and it sets us up to be gospel living people. It's, it's incontrovertible. It's whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whether you wear a hat or whether you don't wear a hat, whether you have long hair or short hair, do all to the glory of God. We understand that, but Paul fleshes it out for us here. He gives two classic examples. For instance, he says, in understanding this hinge verse, for instance, when you are gathered together, male and female, worshiping the Lord, here's how you ought to conduct yourselves. When you are together at the Lord's table, bringing glory to God, whether you eat or whether you drink, here's how you should love one another. Here's how you should care for one another. This is how this, this verse 31 is, is given a for instance and so uh, this morning, I just have two points. 
One, let's talk about worshiping God in whatever you do. Like honoring the structural design of creation. Because contextually, that's where Paul takes us. And I want you to notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 33, that he says here, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good. There are three critical verses here, or critical phrases here as we launch in that are, are always, um, that, that always guide us in how we treat one another. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many. And then he says, follow the example of Christ. Well, what was the example of Christ? The example of Christ in Romans 15, 3 was this. He didn't please himself. And then in verse 32, he says, uh, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew, Greek, or church of God, whether they're lost or whether they're brothers or sisters in Christ. Don't cause people to stumble over theological truth. These are the critical matters. This is the introduction here. And then he starts out this way. And we'll take it in little sections. He says, I praise you for remembering me, verse 2, for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Okay. It seems that what was happening in Corinth is what we call in theological circles over-realized eschatology. Over-realized eschatology. You know what eschatology is? Yes? Eschatology is about the end. The end, of course, when we're all with the Lord. Eschatology, end times, the the teaching of end times. Over-realized eschatology means that you are living in the present as if it is the future. And so in this case, when they had heard the gospel and realized now that they become free in Christ, it seems that in particular the women were quite excited and enthused about the eschatological truth of there was coming a day when we'll all be like the angels in the sense that there won't be structural gender distinctiveness. We won't be given in mar- we won't marry or be given in marriage in heaven. Hooray, boo. We'll be fine with it because it's God's plan. So in that in that heavenly reality for us, there's no longer going to be this what was created for earth, the distinctiveness of our genders in terms of structure and design. So it appears that what happened is the women in Corinth were doing two different things, but one of them was they had already decided to cast off their structure and and order and design and where they were in terms of 
of being uh, women related to their husbands uh, in that culture being quite dominated by their husbands and now they had taken this opportunity for emancipation and were taking it to the extreme. So they were, they were acting in worship as if they were men. And they had taken it to the point of costuming. They were, they, they were apparently also embracing uh, the way that pagan women were dressed or acting. And so when it came time now for the church gathering, they were both offending the church at large and they were offending and they were they were um, um, uh, causing discontent outside of the church of Jesus Christ they were like what what's with these Christian women who are no longer uh, showing respect or honor to their husbands so we have this situation where now the church is no longer demonstrating the creation order and design so Paul says Okay, we need to start with the fact that there is an order and a structure and a design to the universe. It's not just a mess. It's orderly. And so he gives this outline here. And he says that um, uh, the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. And Paul says, just because, because you became believers... Has, that hasn't changed. That's still the way it is. In fact, because you've become believers, you need to model that even more clearly and distinctly that you might be a, a clear example of theological truth. Keep in mind that the church is always supposed to be the prototype of the kingdom of God. We are always called to be theological truth. When people in our world are confused about God and the order of things and the universe and the way things are supposed to be, they should be able to look at the church of Jesus Christ and say, that is the way God has designed it. They were not. And so the, there's, there's three key sections here. The first is this. It's, it's about authority. The universe Christ created is structurally designed with, and the word that's used here is kephale, head, headship or authority. We are called, in other words, to honor our head. Each of us are called in our particular gender to honor our head by reflecting the structure of the, the universe, in this case, and in each generation by how we relate to one another in our customs. Whatever that is. Custom of that day was that women were to wear some sort of veil over themselves when they were praying, talking to God, or prophesying, talking about God. And men were not supposed to wear something. And there's a reason for that. Men were not supposed to, and the, the wording, the language is very difficult here, but the language is men were not supposed to have something down over their head. It says their, their head was not supposed to be down. A man's head is not supposed to be down when he's praying because he's praying to his head. He's speaking to God. And because Christ is not visibly there, he is to lift up his head and not to lift down his head. That's the idea. The woman, on the other hand, is because, and we're going to look at this in a few moments, because of creation, 
she is, her, the head of the woman is her husband. Now, by the way, I hope you notice in the text it says that the head of every man is Christ, but it doesn't say the head of every woman is man. Notice that? It says the head of woman is man. In other words, women, your husband is your head, but not every man. And, and, uh, and then, of course, the head of Christ is God. And Jesus demonstrated this willing submission to God. The, the picture here is, is an amazing picture because it's, it, it's, it's not a tyrannical leadership or a tyrannical authority. God loves us and loves us in such a way that we willingly submit to him. We willingly submit to Christ because he loves us. Not because Christ didn't come at salvation and demand that we honor him and, and Christ doesn't visit us with some sort of tyrannical uh, rulership over us, but rather Jesus Christ loves us. And he, he woos our submission by his great love for us. In the same way as the husband is supposed to woo his, the submission of his wife by his great love for his wife. So that the people in the world who notice that we willingly submit to the king of kings say, what kind of king must this be? That you willingly submit to him because he loves you. I need to know about this king. And people need to see in our lives, in our married lives, they need to see well, what, what kind of husband must this be that his wife would willingly long to respect him, willingly long to submit to him. I must meet this man. He must be a very good man. And so we bring, we adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ by our behavior. How Jesus treats us, how the King of Kings treats us, we treat one another. And so there's this uh, picture and it, it appears that they were ignoring the customary distinctions between the sexes and, and um, Paul says it's disgraceful. When people look at you, the women are acting like men, the men are acting like women. It, it makes no sense. It's, it's, a, it's an abomination to the design of God. And apparently it was a deliberate action. It was understood to bring shame to the immediate head and it was a breakdown of gender distinction. God says, the word of God says there should be no man-women and there should be no women-men in the church of Jesus Christ. Whether it's appearing gay or a, pagan, or a pagan, it dishonors God, as one writer puts it. And so you have this, the church is called to model what is theologically true, and they were not in their honoring of their head by reflecting the structure with the exercise of our customs. The second section is found in verses 7 through 12, and it goes this way. A man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now that's the key to the second difference. The first was that we are to honor our head. The second is we are to bring glory to our head. You'll see this as we read it. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was, a, was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Okay. So the second reality we have here, the first was it's about authority. The second is it's about design. 
Paul brings into the first part, he shows the structure of the universe. The second part, he says, I want to talk to you again about creation and remind you about creation and God's purposeful design in creation. And so in design, the human creation brings glory to God by taking delight in the purposefulness and intentionality of creation. We bring glory to God. We worship God when we take delight in ple- and pleasure in the way God has made us. Not to uh, object to it. And so in this section, it says here specifically, how do you do that? You do that by bringing glory to your head. In this case, respecting the purpose and design of that structure. He says here, a man ought not to cover his head since he is in the image and glory of God. And we are both, both genders are in the image and glory of God. We know that. But he makes this distinction by saying, but the woman is the glory of man. Man is not the glory of the woman. The woman is the glory of man. Based on the fact that God chose to make the man first and then the woman would derive her life from the man who, and she was made to be his help, right? His complementary help, his helper. So you have this design. Men were created to be distinctively men and women were created to be distinctively women. And the church is supposed to be the, the prototype of, of expressing that in its fullest way. Never could it be more important than right now. And a man honors or brings glory to his head. And who's the, who's the head of the man? Christ. The man in worship brings glory to Christ by taking his responsibility to lead, to be that created leader that God has designed. Man is the head who bears full responsibility, by the way, for the ongoing life of his wife. That's what we understand here. Uh, Because the woman derived her life from him and was made for him, not the other way around. And she is to expect a spectacular quality of life from her husband, just as Christ offers us a spectacular quality of life. She is to expect a spectacular quality of life, to be protected and to be provided for. And a man is not to place his wife in a a situation that would cause her to violate this gender distinction and clarity. And so the man brings glory to Christ by doing that. Men, by uh, treating our wives the way we were created to treat them, we bring glory to Christ. And we bring attraction to the gospel. Likewise, women are called here to bring glory and praise to their husband. When the church is gathered, particularly, and we are to do that, women, operating in whatever way our present custom presents. Just because you plunk a hat on your head and come to church today does not mean 
that you are showing respect or honor or bringing glory to your husband. It has to come from the heart. It has to come from your attitude. But we also have to be counterculture in the sense that there is no place in the church for a radical, rebellious feminism that says, I will not bring respect. I will not accept this design and plan of God. The women of God, biblical womanhood, uh, takes this responsibility seriously and says, I, I'm going to do whatever, whatever actions, whatever costuming brings dishonor or criticism to my husband would be a failure to live out the role that Christ has called me to. I will not do that. So in verse 10, it says, she ought, therefore, to have a sign, literally in the, in the, in the uh, original text, it, it just says here, the woman ought to have authority on her head. So in whatever way, in 2015, ladies, you live and carry yourself and act and speak in a way that brings respect and honor to your husband is the application of this text. And he says here, we ought to do this for the angels. Now, that's, you know, as if this text wasn't hard enough, we're like, what for the angels? What is he talking about? You probably know this, but we're not alone this morning. It's not just us here. Do we know that? That this is a very crowded room. There's no empty pews here. There are supernatural onlookers here. Both angels and possibly demons. And keep in mind that all of creation is to bring glory to God. And we have from the very beginning this disruption in that glory. Satan and his followers and the vast majority of the world does not bring honor and glory to God. And so the angels love to gather in Bible-believing, teaching churches. Why do they love to do that? They love to come and see what God has done with humanity. They love to come and they love to gather and they love to hear us sing and they love to hear us praise God and they love to see us expressing theological truth in how we live and how we treat each other. And what happens when they see that? They bring glory to God. We can be responsible for causing massive numbers of angels on any given Sunday to bring glory to God. And you see, this order is so critical that Satan decided to try and disturb it from the very beginning. The reason this is such an important truth to the Christian church is because this, this very breakdown is the cause of the fall of humanity into sin. It was when Satan went and spoke to the woman about spiritual theological things that the whole thing broke down. Not because of the woman. Because her husband failed to take responsibility for his role to step in and protect his wife and to say, hey, wait a second, why are you talking to my wife? You have no right to talk to my wife. You want to talk to my wife, you come through me. 
That's what Adam needed to do. And because Adam refused to do that, because he refused to take his role and responsibility, we're in the fix we're in. Not because of Eve, because of Adam. And because of men in churches who don't stand up to theological truth, don't stand up for theological truth, don't stand in the way of their wives and protect their wives, that we have all kinds of breakdowns. And we have angels who hang their heads in despair because people aren't living out the truth of Jesus Christ. And so this is massively important. There's either an angelic victory here today or a demonic victory here today by how we treat each other, husbands and wives, and all of us in the body of Christ. This is immensely important stuff. And then together, in verse 11, it says, but we're not independent of each other. Together, a man and a woman bring glory and praise to God by delighting in the practice of complementary relationships that reflect the creation design. So women, you ought to visibly carry yourself in some way to submit to the position of your husband as your head. So don't take over. That doesn't bring glory to your husband. Many men will not stand up for their responsibility because they're not allowed to. We aren't invited to take over for Christ. You're not invited to take over for your husband. You're called, you're called to bring glory to your husband as your husband is called to bring glory to Christ as together you both bring glory to Christ. In the final section here, he says, um, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I must admit to you, I don't totally get what Paul's talking about here. This is one of the sections I'm going to go and say, Paul, I need, I need help. I need to understand what you were talking about here. I know some of what he's saying here. He's simply saying this is all about common sense. It's not just about the universal structure. It's not just about creation design, but it's common sense that men are different than women. And there should be a difference. There should be a distinction. Uh, women should look like women and men should look like men. There, there needs to be somehow a, a very clear nature itself testifies. And if we look at the creation of God, the animal kingdom, whatever, for the most part, the male looks different than the female and there's a, just a difference. I don't understand, though, why God uh, allowed our hair to grow if he didn't want us to have long hair. Uh, I'm just putting it out there. That's, that was my thing back when I was a teenager. It's like, hey, I, I get it, but my hair grows. And I don't want to go to a barber, so that's the way it is. So I, I don't fully get this, that women's hair grows, men's hair grows, but I do know that salvation is, the, is not intended to change creation. Salvation is intended to redeem those aspects of creation that have been lost and are, are rebelled against and re, uh, um, um, fallen. The... Um, I just want to give you a quick statement. You're going to get together in groups tonight. You're going to have a great time talking about all this stuff. But let me just say the second part was let's talk about worshiping God, uh, whether you eat or drink. And I'll just give you the outline, this quick, quick outline that goes on in this second section. What they were doing at the Lord's table is they were just going ahead and eating. 
and they were, they were getting drunk. They, the rich were eating all kinds of food and they were leaving out poor people. And it was just a mess at the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is supposed to be a place where we are eating and drinking in the spiritual reality of what God has done for us. We are to remember what God, Christ has done that we might never forget Jesus. We are to proclaim the truth and we are to be nourished by the Spirit of God, by His reality in our lives. And bad manners at the Lord's table have huge consequences. I regularly warn you that you should not come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, in a bad manner way, which means you've been abusing people in the body of Christ. And Jesus won't stand for the abuse of His new creation. He loves you. He loves the body of Christ. And he demands that we love one another. And he will go so far, it says in the text, to make you sick or put you to sleep permanently if you take this in a cavalier fashion. And so I simply put it out to you that when we, when we offer a verse, whether you eat or drink, like we do at the Lord's table, or whatever you do, husbands, wives, do all to the glory of God. And God is jealous for his glory. And he will do whatever it takes to ensure that his church is the prototype modeling theological truth and the kingdom of God that the angels might praise him, the demons might be embarrassed, and the lost might come to salvation. That's what this text is all about. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning for you to take these stumbling, stammering words and fashion them into a way that brings glory to you as we encounter your truth and reconsider our lives. Are they lining up? Oh God, I pray this morning that we will take seriously the matter of creation and new creation, that we might glorify you in all that we do in Jesus' name, amen. So the heart of worship is to bring glory and honor to God in our uniqueness, distinctiveness and gender, and our joy in the body of Christ. I, I don't think it's about long hair or short hair today and whether we wear a hat or we don't wear a hat. The message to the outside world doesn't gain anything from our costuming necessarily. But it's how we treat one another. A biblical man treats his wife as protector, provider, spiritual leader. The biblical woman respects and submits to her husband, expects to be loved and cared for as a true partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful message of the gospel to our culture. When people look at us, they should see a distinction in how we live and how we love one another. So I don't think it's very easy for us to make a hard and fast application on this text other than to say what we see going on in the world around us is not it. 
It is to follow the creation design of God and to bring glory to God by delighting in our role and our responsibility and who he's made us to be. That's crucial. And then to love one another with a profound caring love that is starkly different from the world so that they're drawn to the gospel as well. These are the problems that Paul encountered in Corinth. These are the problems that are still encountered in the church today. But let's, for the glory of God's sake, honor his word. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for teaching us. And now, with the Spirit of God, move our hearts to application that we might understand how we can, in fact, live out the glory of God in, in how we treat one another within families, husbands, wives, within the church, for Jesus' sake. Amen.